0: from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey, Here's Louisa Beck from The Washington Post.
1: Hi,
2: this is Beth Reinhardt of The Washington Post.
0: It's Lori Artani over at The Post. I'm... This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, November 20th. Today, the president's escalating attacks on democracy, John Lennon's most revealing album, and the COVID test black market.
3: This has been an extraordinary week in our democracy because we have in President Trump an executive who's using the power of the presidency, the awesome powers of his office, to try to overturn the results of the election, to effectively try to stay in power despite the clear will of the people, of the voters.
0: That's Phil Rucker, White House bureau chief for The Post. He's been reporting on all the ways the president is attacking the results of the election.
3: He placed a phone call earlier this week to a Republican member of the Wayne County Board of Canvassers, the, the election official in Wayne County, Michigan. That's the largest county in Michigan by population. It's the home of the city of Detroit, uh, very heavily Democratic. It voted for Biden by a substantial margin. And Trump called her one night, and after the phone call, she actually signed an affidavit saying she wanted to withdraw her signature from the formal certification of the vote results in Wayne County. Hmm. And that was a, a pretty extraordinary act of pressure by the president to lean on a Republican official in Wayne County. And then on Friday, the president is scheduled to meet with the House and Senate uh, state legislative leaders in from Michigan. Both of them are Republicans flying to Washington from Detroit to meet with the president. And it's unclear what they're going to talk about, but there is a possibility laid out in state law where if a number of things fall into place, the state legislature could actually decide how to award Michigan's electors to the Electoral College. Hmm. And there's a remote possibility that despite Biden's win in, in the vote in the state of Michigan, uh, that that the legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, could actually award Trump electors. And that seems to be what the president is encouraging.
0: So these were some direct actions taken by the president. But then on Thursday, we also saw this extraordinary press conference with Rudy Giuliani and other members of the Trump campaign's legal team, where they basically spouted conspiracy theories. Can you tell me more about what happened there?
3: Martine, it was such a spectacle. An hour and 45 minutes at the headquarters of the Republican National Committee, Rudy Giuliani, the president's lead attorney.
1: Good afternoon, and thank you very much for coming. Uh, This is um, representative of our legal team. We're representing uh, President
3: Trump, and we're representing the Trump campaign. Effectively alleged a widespread and coordinated plot, a conspiracy, to rig the election on behalf of Joe Biden.
1: They elected Donald Trump. They didn't elect Joe Biden. Joe Biden is in the lead because of the fraudulent ballots, the illegal ballots that were produced and that were allowed to be used after the election was over.
3: They even alleged that the conspiracy had roots in Venezuela uh, with the late Hugo Chavez.
0: The Dominion voting systems, the Smartmatic technology software, And the software that goes in other computerized voting systems here as well, not just Dominion, were created in Venezuela at the direction of Hugo Chavez to make sure he never lost an election after one constitutional referendum came out the way he did not want it to come out.
3: There's simply no evidence to support what they said. They, they offered no evidence to support their claims at the press conference. Uh, that sort of widespread fraud just does not exist. We're now three weeks after the election and, and there's no evidence that's been uncovered to support these claims and these conspiracies. But it speaks to, uh, the desperation on the Trump side. To, you know, wage a public relations battle to try to reverse the outcome of the election. They have tried for a few weeks now in courts uh, all across the country to wage legal challenges claiming voter fraud, and all of those challenges have been thrown out in court. And so now the president's strategy is to do this in the public arena, to wage a media campaign and to pressure Republican elected officials in various key states into basically certifying, you know, reversing the certification of the vote.
0: And I think that's what's so notable about this new stage that we're in. Yes, we've been hearing lies, conspiracy theories, misleading statements from the president and his allies since the night of election night, but at least for the first week or two, votes were still being counted and that there was a sense of, well, once the officials and states have certified the results, then that will sort of put a rest to it. But now those certifications have happened. Georgia is a great example of, you know, they did a full hand recount there. It didn't change the results. All the court battles that that have been waged by the Trump campaign have failed. And yet we're still here with the president and his allies saying things that are not true, even though they've already exhausted all the other avenues for trying to pretend like the results of the election are not true.
3: Yeah, it's really remarkable what's happening. And if you look at the big picture, you know, these are the words and and the actions of an attempted coup. Michael Beschloss, a renowned historian and, and author of many books, he told me, quote, we have never seen anything like this before. This is a president abusing his very great powers to try to stay in office, even though it is obvious to everyone that he has been defeated in the polls.
0: And I do think that there have been a lot of people who said, oh, calling it a coup, calling it a constitutional crisis is overdramatic or premature. But it does seem like we're getting to that territory in a very serious way.
3: Yeah, it's not overdramatic, actually. Uh, If if you just, you know, isolate the actions and the words that we see from the president— He is very plainly trying to uh, overturn the results of an election by claiming fraud that does not exist and by pressuring, and he's doing it out loud and in public by pressuring state officials in Michigan, in Georgia, and in other states to reject the will of the people, to overturn uh, the popular vote in their states, and to award Trump electors to the Electoral College, which would make Trump reelected as the president of the United States for four more years. It seems unlikely that he will actually succeed in this endeavor, uh, but it's very clear what he is trying to do.
0: I also think that when you think about the phone calls and meetings that the president is having this week and the ways that he's trying to wield his influence to overturn the results, in some ways that seems somewhat similar to what President Trump was impeached for just a year ago, basically using his influence to elicit actions that he thinks will help him in the election.
3: That's exactly right. There certainly are parallels between his behavior right now and the, the acts with Ukraine that, that actually got him impeached. You know, he's he's trying to use this power of his office and, and another way he's doing it, by the way. And it's not gotten as much outrage because I think it's happening in plain view. But on Twitter for the last several days now, the president has been publicly badgering the Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, trying to plead with him to intervene in Georgia's hand recount Hmm. and throw out ballots, uh, enough ballots that it would flip, in Trump's words, flip, the result of the election in that state.
0: I feel like this is yet another example of President Trump, like, doing the quiet part out loud, just saying clearly on Twitter, like, the thing that he is trying to do that is certainly, like, an attempt to undermine our democracy. But, But what I'm wondering is, At what point will Republican leadership step in?
3: You know, if there is a line for Senate Republicans, I'm not sure what it is because we've seen this pattern for four years now where the president does behaviors that are are reckless, that you could argue are dangerous, unconstitutional, illegal, uh, and Senate Republicans have have very carefully stood by his side. You know, what we saw this week is, is Senator Mitt Romney, the 2012 Republican presidential nominee, really one of the lone voices uh, in the Senate on the Republican side to criticize Trump over the years, he came out with a statement saying that this was antithetical to American democracy, that what Trump was doing was a genuine threat. And we saw Senator Ben Sass, another Republican uh, from Nebraska, Issue a, a slightly softer statement, but a, a condemnation nonetheless. But we've not heard from uh, any other Senate Republican leaders, and there's a reason for that.
0: I was going to say, so, so that's that's two of fifty-something Republicans in the Senate.
3: Exactly, and and the reason so many Republican senators are fearful of uh, speaking out on this is is twofold. First of all, they don't want Trump to start attacking them, to uh, foment a rebellion among Republican voters in their states. Some of these people are going to be up for re-election in 2022. But the other reason is there's a Georgia Senate runoff for both of Georgia's Senate seats in early January. And the results of that race are going to determine control of the Senate, whether McConnell remains as majority leader or does Democrat Chuck Schumer take on the majority. And it's a very close race. And the Republicans, especially and including McConnell, believe that they need the Republican Party united. They need Trump on their side. Uh, They need to keep Trump's base in Georgia galvanized and energized and together in order to win those Senate races.
0: So by that logic, then, We can expect to see President Trump continue to spread lies and conspiracy theories about the results of the election well through the Electoral College actually meeting next month. And we shouldn't expect that all of a sudden there's going to be one day where Republican leadership says, OK, enough is enough. The election is over.
3: I think that's right. You know, I think once the results are certified in these states and the Electoral College electors, Meet and and certify that result in December. Then I assume we're going to hear from every elected official, including Republicans, that Joe Biden is in fact the president-elect of the United States. But un- until then, I, I would be very surprised if Republican leaders on Capitol Hill actually stood up to the president because th- over four years they've shown no willingness to do so.
0: Phil Rucker is the White House bureau chief for the Post. On Friday, Senator Lamar Alexander from Tennessee became the latest Republican member of the Senate to acknowledge in a statement that Joe Biden has, quote, a very good chance of becoming the next president. This week marks the 40th anniversary of double fantasy.
3: Our life together.
0: The last album by John
4: Lennon. Which is an album that came out in 1980, and it's really also a record that he made with his wife, Yoko Ono.
0: Jeff Edgers is a national arts reporter for The Post.
4: It's John Lennon's comeback record, but it also is his final record that was released during his life.
0: Three weeks after Double Fantasy was released, John Lennon was shot and killed outside his apartment in New York City. Millions of people mourned the tragic death of John Lennon today.
3: All of a sudden, they heard five, six shots, and that this was evening, it. This evening, John Lennon arrived. He was dead on, at the time of his arrival.
0: And in many ways, what Jeff has found really interesting about this record is that it documents the final years in the life of this music icon.
4: To me, it's not the best John Lennon record, but it's the most fascinating John Lennon album.
0: So I want to be transparent here and say that I don't actually know that much about John Lennon and I know even less about Yoko Ono. But like the things that I know are A, that the like Yoko Ono phase was like when John Lennon had long hair, I think. (laughs) And then the the thing that I've always heard is that like
4: Yoko Ono was the one who broke up the Beatles or... Oh God, it's... Stop! You can't... (laughs) We need to put an end to that okay we need to end that anyway she didn't split the beatles because uh, how could uh, one girl split the beatles or one woman you know the beatles were drifting apart on their own you know? john lennon was obviously in the biggest band in the world he had a lot of woman mother issues largely in the fact that his real mother his birth mother gave him up very early and for a time he thought she was his older sister and he lived with his stern aunt Mimi. Uh, Well, I didn't want him wasting his time playing a guitar. I'd battled against it, you know, for quite a long time. And he got married very young, had a child, and then suddenly in the midst of all this, he meets Yoko Ono, who by the time he met her in 1966 was an accomplished Avant-garde artist. She was having a show at this gallery. And I knew the fellow that ran it. And John went to it and met her. And then she came up and said, uh, she didn't know who I
2: was. And was saying, it's five shillings.
1: <laughs> so I said, uh,
2: didn't I didn't have any money. Either, so I said, oh,
4: and it just opened up his entire universe. God, that, was, that was how we met,
3: actually. <laughs> yeah.
0: So let me ask this. Why is it that now you're going back to look at the relationship between John Lennon and Yoko Ono and also at this particular album that they did together?
4: Well, this album comes out in 1980, and I'm sorry, we all are weakened by what connects with us as a child. (laughs) I was 10 years old when this album came out, and it came out out of nowhere to me. John Lennon, who had been, you know, the Beatles put out like seven records a year. Then as a solo artist, he and Yoko were everywhere. (laughs) He was, you know, taking over the Mike Douglas Show.
1: Welcome to the Mike Douglas
3: Show.
2: This is John Lennon. And Yoko
3: Ono.
4: Doing their bed-in protest.
2: Why do you want
1: them to do it at
3: Berkeley? We don't
2: want them to do it Uh, at
4: Berkeley. We're telling
1: them to protest some other way. If they'd stayed in bed Uh, at Berkeley, uh, they wouldn't have got killed.
4: They were everywhere. And then suddenly, in 1975, it screeched to a halt. Because John and Yoko had a son, Sean. And John decided he was going to stop putting out albums.
0: Between Yoko
1: and I, I cannot do figures and numbers. I'm not good at business. And somebody had to take the care of business. So she had to do it. She has the talent to do it. So I had the early
4: relationship with Sean because she would go to the office, even though the office was only downstairs. So he retreated into their home in the Dakota, this historic building in New York.
2: And uh, gradually
4: I got into being a house husband or with Sean or whatever. And for five years, we basically didn't hear anything from John Lennon. I enjoyed being housebound because I always liked hanging around the house. He showed up like at the circus one day.
3: What's your favorite part of circus? I like the clowns and the little dogs. Would you give it all up to run away and join the circus?
1: I've already given it up. I haven't decided (laughs) where to run, though.
4: But otherwise, he was completely silent.
0: Wait, for five years? I did not know this about John Lennon, that he just, like, was at home raising his kid and not making music or, like, out in the
4: world. His final recording studio session for one of his albums was 1974. He would not return to the studio until 1980. So he was completely off the musical map. You know, like, Ringo was putting out records every year. (laughs) And John was just not really heard from.
0: So can you talk a little bit about What you heard from the other people in his life about this moment and both the years before and this decision to give it a shot with this album?
4: You know, talking to people in the Beatles, if you want to call it that, is very hard. What you're really left with is trying to talk to the people who are involved in making the record.
1: So I'm at a a health food restaurant over on the east side. Who walks in but John? And he sees me and he's with Sean. And he's like
4: jack so i spoke with jack douglas he was the producer on double fantasy
1: he said look he writes down a telephone number he goes this
4: is my private number over at dakota jack basically told me that you know he hadn't heard from john for years and suddenly he was dropped these two cassette tapes in an envelope it says for jack's ears only and he talked to john on the phone and john said
1: he said i've been writing these songs i don't know if they're worth anything You listen to these songs, and I'll call you tomorrow.
2: Okay, a testing, a testing.
4: And as soon as he heard these recordings, and they were demo recordings, you know, just banged out by John on a piano or with a guitar in a room.
1: Then they were all primitively recorded into a boombox.
4: And they were absolutely marvelous, incredible gems, every one of them. He said... This is this is great. I mean, we could put these out on their own.
1: And so he said, we should do it. We should do it. You can do it. He said, you tell me the songs you want to record and I'll be back. People say I'm crazy. Doing what I'm
0: doing.
4: These songs on these tapes made up the heart of Double Fantasy. Songs like Watching the Wheels, Woman, Woman. Well, what's so bold about Double Fantasy is that John Lennon is recording a comeback record, but it actually isn't a John Lennon record. It's a John Lennon and Yoko Ono record. And they insisted that half the songs were John and half were Yoko. And... Not only that, they didn't put John's songs on one side and Yoko's on the other. They alternated. And so the idea of double fantasy is a dialogue between the two of them. It's a
1: heart play. It's a play. It's a statement by a husband and a but woman. But how,
4: how early in the process did you know that that was what was going to happen?
1: With, within the first week
4: of production in our meetings. This is really a chance to reinvent who Yoko is and to reintroduce her. She had been heavily criticized for her music and her style of singing very expressive, almost like screaming in the early 70s. But by the late 70s, you could hear in like Lena Lovitch and the B-52s that people had listened to her and what she did, and they were turning it into like new wave music. And so the songs that Yoko has on this record are the most accessible and most digestible that she ever recorded.
0: And so how was the album received when it finally came out?
4: Well, when Double Fantasy came out, it was criticized by some. It was given sort of like middle of the road reviews. It has a very specific sound. It's a very glossy sound, very mainstream. They wanted a hit. I mean, they had the billboard chart taped up to their bedroom door to chart it. They wanted to compete. It was a hit, but it wasn't a huge hit. And then, of course, December 8th happened.
3: John Lennon
1: is dead. He was shot a short time ago outside his Manhattan apartment building. He died at Roosevelt Hospital. Police have a suspect in custody.
4: December 8th changed everything for Double Fantasy because the record is, you know, three weeks old. Only the best of Top of the Pops. And suddenly it shoots up to number one in both England and, and the United States. We'll go out with the number one. Of course, it's John Lennon, just like starting over.
3: Our life...
4: It actually goes on to sell 3 million copies.
1: The Album of the Year is?
4: It wins the Grammy for Album of the Year.
1: John Lennon, Yoko Ono, Double Fantasy.
4: So, in the end, it was a huge hit.
0: Well, Well, do you think that this album was successful at that goal of trying to rehabilitate Yoko Ono's public image?
4: Well, I think that this album did a lot to reset the story of who Yoko Ono is and was. And it was just a start. I think anybody today would be laughed out of the room. I mean, there are people who are willing to be laughed out of the room, but you should be laughed out of the room if you believe Yoko Ono is the reason the Beatles broke up. You know, ultimately... One night in 1994, Paul McCartney goes over her apartment and she shows him the demos for Free as a Bird.
0: Free
4: as a boy, And then gives him her blessing to bring George and Ringo in and re, you know record over that song. So in fact, the woman who supposedly broke up the Beatles is the one who really brought them together again. Free.
0: Jeff Edgers is a national arts reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing from travel news reporter Shannon McMahon.
2: So COVID-19 tests are pretty hard to get right now in a lot of places with cases rising globally, and they're required for travel in a lot of places. So there's this new trend that's been reported in a bunch of different countries that is black market COVID tests. Basically what it is is travelers paying for these manipulated negative results certificates on either their phone or that they've been able to print out that have been changed from actual COVID tests that other people have taken. And what travelers have been doing is presenting those at the airport or at a destination um, in order to be able to sort of travel internationally without actually having taken their own COVID test. There was an investigation at the Charles de Gaulle airport in Paris recently and police there arrested nine individuals who had acquired digital negative COVID-19 test results and manipulated them for people for a price. They were asking for about 300 euros, which is about $360. Where they were actually acquiring them from was people who had taken tests before and they were able to sort of edit those, manipulate those they were charged with fraud and they face up to five years in prison for distributing these manipulated COVID tests. We're seeing a lot of places crack down on their protocols for acquiring these. The state of Hawaii, which reopened recently, is requiring approved labs only for your COVID test. You also have to upload them directly to an app where they can confirm those results but it seems like at least some people have been trying to really get around all of those obstacles. I think that this idea that there's now a black market for COVID-19 tests for travel really shows the lengths that people are going to to get back to being able to travel. Just the fact that they can't obtain their own in such a short amount of time, you would think most people would say, okay, well, it's just not worth traveling for. But apparently for some people, it's worth that upwards of 300 euros and and the risk of, of criminal charges to be able to leave the country again.
0: Shannon McMahon is the travel news reporter for By the Way from The Washington Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Maggie Penman. Our senior producer is Reina Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Murray Smith. Rennie Svernovsky is our associate producer. The Post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post.